Hi, I'm Gus Wallen, and this is not an overnight success brought to you by Shaw and Partners. This is a podcast where we sit down with some very successful people from the world of business, entertainment and sport and talk about their life's journey and what got them to the position that they're in today. In today's episode, we are chatting with Peter Costello. Peter was the longest standing treasurer that Australia has ever seen. He is also deemed to be the most successful. With a law background, Peter realised that he didn't want to just act on what the law was, but rather that he wanted to be part of creating it. There are things from his political career that he is proud of, and there are things with the benefit of hindsight he might have changed. There have been rumours of a falling out occurring between him and John Howard for over a decade, and that Peter was promised the Prime Ministership before the falling out occurred. All of this is answered in this interview, as well as some of the interesting things about his family life, life in Canberra and how he feels about how the country is being run today. As for all of these podcasts, Shaw and Partners have generously donated $10,000 to the charity of choice of each of our guests. We discuss who that money goes to in this chat. The executive producer of this podcast is Keisha Pettit. Let's get into our chat with Peter Costello. So Peter, what were you like as a kid? Oh, I think I was a bit of a brat, actually. I, uh, I used to get into trouble quite a bit. I had a cheeky mouth. I think I was more than a handful for my school teachers. So that all proved good training when I got into Parliament because being a brat's very helpful in Parliament. You can get up the nose of your opponents. But uh, it got me into a lot of trouble when I was a kid. And I think I got my first edition of the, uh, the strap which is what they used to give you in those days in grade two. And it wasn't my last either. Wow, grade two is a little too young, I think, for that type of thing. Wouldn't be allowed these days, but uh, <laughs> I was uh, summoned to the office of the infant headmistress who uh, pulled out a big strap and gave me five of the best. Wow. And what did mum and dad think of that? Were they okay with that or did they sort of go up, go up and have a chat to the school after? I think they thought I should have got 10 of the best. Uh. (laughs) (laughs) What was your relationship like with your brother, Tim, in particular growing up? Well, he was an older brother. He was uh, two years older than me, so he was always bigger, stronger, faster. You know, he could always beat me in games and he could always beat me in fights. (laughs) So uh, the only way I could uh, really cope with that was to show grit and determination. So even though I couldn't beat him, I'd keep on playing in the hope that I might. I don't think I ever did, of course. By the time I got to school, I'd already been sort of well-trained in uh, by an older brother and all the things that I needed to know. AFL, a big part of your life, the Essendon Bombers. What are your memories of first supporting them and now being a tragic? Uh, well, you see, you become a tragic because you start at a very early age. And, you know, I think I probably started before I could, I could walk. And we had the jumpers and uh, we played games in, uh, in the backyard and at the park. And you always imagined uh, that you could uh, kick the winning goal. And it's funny, you know, when they speak to these uh, players after the game, how did you feel when you kicked the winning goal? They'll always say to you, I've been imagining this in my mind since I was uh, five years of age. And, of course, you do. You always imagine you kick the winning goal after the siren. Uh, In my case, of course, it never happened. But I imagined it a lot. And I think it's the same in cricket. You always imagine you hit the, the winning four in the test match at Lords or something. Again, you know, I was lucky to ever get to a score of four in my life, but 
in your mind. You could always do it. <laughs> that magical moment when then Steve Waugh pumped that one through the covers for a four to bring up his hundred, you know, the last over of the day. Yeah, you just imagine that's you and the whole fate of the game hangs on you. And, <laughs> <laughs> but like most kids, I dream, dreamt about it. I did too. I know exactly what you mean. You did speak about cricket. So AFL and cricket, were they the two big sports for you and your family? Yeah, I think so. You know, I love the AFL. I still do. I still go quite a bit. But I also love cricket. And I look, I played cricket a bit. But, uh, you know, as I said, four was about my top score, as I recall. I didn't do too many better than that. (laughs) You can't be fantastic at everything. And I, I certainly understand that as I'm getting older. What drew you towards sort of politics, considering your sort of legal and law background as a, as a young man? Well, you see, when I, when I was working, I was self-employed as, uh, as a lawyer, and uh, I started doing a lot of work in, in what was then called the industrial division of the federal court. And this is where uh, disputes between employers and employees were heard, and this is where wages were settled. I used to have a thing called the National Wage Case. So after a while, I, I was briefed to appear in the national wage case, and it wasn't really a legal case. It was sort of more an argument about economics and economic theory, and and so I got quite interested in economic theory. And then I thought to myself, oh, you know, I spent all these times sort of arguing about how the law should apply. It'd be much better if I got involved in making it in the first place. <laughs> That's That way I could get the outcome I wanted rather than have to argue it under somebody else's laws. So, you know, I got involved in politics. Eventually I got uh, elected and I think I was 30, 32, I think, when I first got elected, something like that. So I was pretty young and it went from there. What was that first night like, the, the day that you got elected? Was it, were you nervous? Did you wake up early? Did you win easily? What was that for you that day? Well, you never know, you see, because, you know, you think you should win, right? Yeah. Uh, and you work, I worked very hard. And, uh, <laughs> but then you think, hmm, there are 80,000 people voting here and, a lot of them might not like me. <laughs> and what if, what if a majority of them don't like me? Oh, then I'm in trouble. So, uh, so you never really know until uh, they count all of the ballots. And to my great surprise, I was elected. And after a while, it's like anything, you know, you get a bit more used to it. You learn how to evaluate feedback. Like very few people will actually say to your face, oh, I don't like the job you're doing. But if they said to you on the street, hang on in there, that meant you were going pretty bad. (laughs) Hang on in there. (laughs) If you were doing well, they were much more forthcoming. So you you get to learn how public opinion is made, how it comes about, how you can influence it. And after a while, you've got a much better idea of what your electoral prospects are going to be. I never lost a personal election. I was, I was elected uh, each time I ran for my own particular seat. But I was a member of uh, uh, an opposition which lost in 1990, 1993, and in uh, in 2007. And in 2007, 
you could just see the big bus was coming for us. Mm. And there wasn't much we could do about it. You had a lot of very, very good days in between all those moments, and we'll get to those mm. in, a, in a moment. Was it what you expected, politics? Did you Were you surprised by anything when you um, got into it? Look, it's a, being in Canberra is a very weird life because no one actually lives in Canberra. So you will come in from all over Australia. And you all work together in this building and this building is built into a hill and you can't go out, you can't walk down the street or anything because there's nowhere around, there's nowhere to walk. No cafe, there's no coffee shop. So your whole life gets lived on the inside of this building and uh, there are places where you can buy breakfast and you could go to a bank, you could get a haircut, you could find a travel agent. So you never actually had to go outside this building at any stage except to to sleep. And so uh, every night I would go home at about 10 o'clock, sleep, and, and then come back in at 6.37 the next morning. Uh, and I had a flat for most of that time. And I can honestly say to you, I never bought one litre of milk. (laughs) I never bought any breakfast cereal. I never made a a piece of toast in that unit. The only thing I ever did was, you know, sleep for six or seven hours every day. So it's a a very weird life. And you live on top of all of the other people who are all in the same boat as you. Uh, And they might be from quite different places around Australia. And and you realise... Actually, Australia's a very diverse place that, you know, if you come from uh, Melbourne or Sydney or something, a very different outlook to the guy that comes down from far north Queensland mm. or the person that uh, comes from the Huon Valley in Tasmania. Uh, it's a very big and it's a very diverse country. And that's interesting. I think I've been to everywhere in Australia. <laughs> I really have. My wife says, why don't we go to such and such? I say, no, I've been there. Why don't we go to such and such? And I, what did you do? Oh, I gave a speech in the RSL hall there. Oh, yeah, what, what's the talent? I don't know, but the RSL hall was okay. You know, why don't we go here? Oh, no, I've been to a nursing home there. Why don't we go here? Oh, oh no, no, I, I, I opened a playground there. It's a very big and very diverse country, and you don't want to sort of think everybody sees issues the same as you do in in the big cities. It's quite different sometimes. What was it like on the family? Because obviously you, you, you're in Canberra, you're doing a very big job, especially at the end there, a huge job for Australia. You must have the most wonderful partner that just sort of keeps everything rolling at home so you can do that and keep focused on that. Well, that's right. So I have a wife, Tanya, and three children, and we left them you know, in our home in the electorate uh, in Melbourne. And she basically brought them up. And I would go to Canberra Sunday night, come back Thursday night, Friday. We were reminiscing the other day of three kids each did 12 years of school. That's 36 years. I didn't make one parent-teacher night in those 36 years. <laughs> it's it's not something I'm proud of. <laughs> <laughs> but that was just it. I mean, the, the parent-teacher uh, <laughs> things were on um, during the week and you just weren't there during the week. Mm, she must be a saint. She is, and most of all, she's still married to me, so she's a double saint. 
Yeah, that's awesome, Peter. You're described as the most successful treasurer that Australia's ever had. How does that make you feel, firstly? And was there a lot of pressure because you've set such a precedent? Well, well, I've held the job longer than anybody else in Australian history, of course. But I often, I often joke. I say, if I'd have been any good, they would have promoted me, and they never did. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but uh, so I held it for just under twelve years, which is longer than anybody in the hundred and twenty years of federal history. So you know, it, it gave me the opportunity to do stuff. But when I started, I didn't think I'd do it for twelve years. I thought, you know, we voted out after three or after six or, or something, but we won a re-election and won another re-election and won another re-election. So I was there for the whole period, nearly 12 years. Yeah, you know, it, it, it was good in the sense that because I was there for such a long time, we had the opportunity to do stuff like, you know, reform the tax system, pay off government debt, establish the future fund and these sorts of things which if you're only in the job a year or even three years you can't do that kind of stuff so it was good from that point of view and you know I I, I never thought that it would last as long as it did I never thought I'd be the longest serving treasurer in Australian history I never thought I'd have the opportunity to do those things but once the opportunity arose I was able to take it that's life isn't it really an opportunity opens for you you either Take it or you don't. You don't know what's going to happen when you take it. Sometimes it really works out for you. The, the moment that everyone talks to me about when I said that I was going to talk to you today was the fact that they always thought that you should have been PM and there was some uh, some deal that was made that John Howard was going to hand that over to you at some stage and it didn't happen. What was that moment like for you? And, and are the rumours true that there was sort of a, a deal or something that you guys were going to do? Well, you know, John had always said to me that, uh, well, first of all, he said he wanted to do one term and he'd retire after that. And I think, you know, he thought, well, okay, well, I'll, I'll do two and I'll retire after that. And then after he'd done two, he sort of thought, well, I'll try a third, you know. And as he continued on, you know, eventually it became obvious to me he was never going to retire. <laughs> and the only way he was going to retire was either... As they say in politics, you can go out through two boxes. You can go out through a ballot box or a coffin. Uh, And the only way he was going to retire was going out on the ballot box. So when we got to the end of all of that, you know, I'd been treasurer for 12 years. I'd been acting prime minister quite a bit, so I knew what it was like. I'd had the opportunity to, to act in the role. And I thought to myself, I'll either make a break now or if I don't, I'll get stuck here for another 10 years, at least 15 years, who knows? And I'll never get out. And eventually they'll take me out in one of those two boxes. So I voluntarily retired. I you know, could say to myself, I chose my own exit, which is very rare in politics, and went out at a time of my own choosing. And life's been good for me since. I think I made the right decision. I was just all politicked out. As I said, I've been doing this job for 12 years. You never have holidays, you don't have long service leave, you just can't escape it. I was just all politicked out, so I just had to get on and do something different with my life. Are you mates with um, John Howard now? Well, I don't see him much because he's uh, he's living in another state from me, but when I do see him, we talk about what's going on and we both agree that the country would be better if we were still running it. And, uh, <laughs> 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 so, so we... 
So, so we have some common views. <laughs> Do you ever feel like my mum, for instance, big liberal, you know, Kalara, which is probably the most blue area up in Sydney and the North Shore. Mm. She loved John Howard, but she thought that he had done the wrong thing. He, she honestly thought that mm. you were the right person to, to take over. Do you feel at times that you could have given it a really good crack being PM? You're, like you said, you, were, you stood in quite a few times, but to have it yourself, to have your own setup. Look, you know, if the opportunity had presented itself to me, yeah, of course I would have taken it. But I don't feel, you know, that I'll be incomplete in my life. You know, as I said, I've been there so long. I'd acted in the job. I'd seen all the benefits and the accoutrements. And I just felt if I stayed on, you know, I would have got... And I have seen this happen to people who become Prime Minister. They get very bitter once they leave. I didn't want to be one of those bitter type of people. I wanted to be a positive person. Anyway, I could tell Gus she had a good mother. There's no doubt about that. <laughs> no, she definitely is. She's, she's an absolute ripper. I, I owe her everything. What motivated you to decide to walk away? Because John Howard did say in 2007, you know, the man to lead this coalition back to government would be yeah. yourself. I love the fact that you were able to deal with it your own way and, and make your own decision, but was it tempting to stay on? Well, you see, what happened uh, on the election night of 2007, I was re-elected, John lost his seat, you see. Yeah. So he was no longer there and couldn't go back to Canberra. And, of course, because I was the deputy leader, I was I was the leader of the party that night because you've got to be an MP to be the leader of the party. I just thought to myself, and everyone said, that's great, we've got PD, you know. I just thought to myself, unless I make a break now, I'll get locked into this. So I went out the next morning and said, I'm not staying. Then sort of said, well, I'll call the party together and I won't run for the leadership. I'll let whoever wants the leadership to run for it, but I'll I'll conduct the ballot. So I went back to Canberra and uh, there was a ballot between Malcolm Turnbull and uh, Brendan Nelson, uh, which was a very close ballot. And I thought, good, right. Brendan's problem now. <laughs> and I passed it over. <laughs> was that a relief to you or was that a bit of sadness? Like what was that moment like or was it a combination of a few emotions? Oh, yeah. Well, you see, as I said, so I've been treasurer for 12 years. He's gone through a bruising election campaign. I didn't have holidays for a decade. So there was a bit of relief. Well, now I can have a day off. I don't have to get up and listen to the the shock jocks in the morning and I don't have to go on the TV at night and I don't have to give out uh, press releases to the journos during the day and that's great. It, and, you know, I can go out and have dinner with my family, which which I hadn't been able to do for quite So there was quite a bit of relief actually in it. But when you tend to, when you see people come into your job and you feel that they're not doing it well, you do sort of want to yell out from the sidelines, hey, stop that, or, you know, be careful about this. And so there is a bit of that. For a while I couldn't watch the TV because, you know, I felt that what was going on was undermining some of my achievements. But then you, you've got to let it go. You, 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 you can't run things from the sidelines. And when you see the, these politicians that try and do it, and there are a few who, who I won't name who spring to mind, uh, commenting on their successes and so on, uh, you know that they're uh, they're angry people inside. Yeah, it's hard to hard to give up. I, I'm I'm sure. Just quickly interrupting the episode to say a very big thank you to the sponsor of this podcast, and that is Shaw and Partners Financial Services. 
Sherwin Partners are an Australian investment and wealth management firm who manage over $28 billion of assets under advice. With seven offices across Australia, Sherwin Partners act for and on behalf of individuals, institutions, corporates and charities. For more info, you can check out their website at shorenpartners.com.au. That's S-H-A-W for sure. Shoreham Partners Financial Services, your partners in building and preserving wealth. And let's get back into the episode. Are there any decisions that you look back on, you go, you know what, absolutely got that one right? And any on the other side where you go, if I had my time over, I might have done things differently? I think I got it right on the GST. That was certainly the hardest thing that I ever implemented because the GST was on all goods and services, every purchase every day, right? So there was a life-changing tax. Now, if you've grown up with it, you wouldn't even know you're paying it. Um, and most people don't. But introduce, and that's the beauty of it, you know, it just raises this revenue. But uh, at the time, uh, gee, that was hard. It was really hard. And, you know, I thought to myself, oh boy, you know, what's going to happen at the end of this? Well, you know, we're 21 years on from the introduction of the GST. Nobody's changed the rate. Nobody's changed the base. Nobody's amended it in any way. It's like a permanent fixture of the Australian taxation system. And the only complaint I hear these days is, you know, there should be more of it. Nobody nobody says we should get rid of it. You know, there's a whole lot of people say, oh, we'd like some more of that. So, so I feel, you know, that was hard, hard fought for, hard won. So I think we did get it right, but she was hard. We, you know, the, the following election, we got a minority of votes, you know. We got a minority of votes, but we just scraped back home again on a small majority of seats. How long does it take to come up with that GST idea and thought? And how many people are in your team that are putting this all together? Because then you had to obviously then sell it. Well, it took us a, a year to draft the policy. So we set up a dedicated team, which I worked for. We put them in a building all on their own. We told them they weren't allowed to talk to anybody else. The team was probably about 20 or 30. After 12 months, we had the policy. and Then we had to have an election to say to the people, do you want this? And as I said, we narrowly won the election, nearly lost it. And then, of course, we had to go back to the parliament. We had to legislate it through the, the lower house and the upper house. And then that took another year. <laughs> and then it started uh, on the 1st of July, 2000. And starting it was really hard too because you had to get people to fill in what's called the business activity statement. That was very difficult, the, the so-called BAS. So from beginning to end, three years. Yeah, it's a long time, isn't it? But you got it done. And as you said, nothing's been changed in 20-odd years. So that's a big tick. Mm, that's a big tick, you know. Any on the other side? Um, I, I wish I'd been able to cut income tax a bit more. That's my big regret. Very hard to do. And we did cut income tax. But I would have liked to have cut it a lot more. I think it would have been good for the country. Are there any people in other parts of the world where you would meet you know, at some sort of summits or something and you would chat about what's happening in Australia, they'd talk about what's happening in America or parts of Europe and you'd go, oh, that's a good idea. Like, was there like a brain trust of you leaders that would spend time together so you could help each other out? Yeah, sure. So that's how the G20 got going as a place to share experiences. I remember discussing GST with a Russian finance minister at one of these meetings here. He said, how's your GST going? It's going well. I said, how's your going? Oh, 
we're having trouble. Uh, oh, well, yeah, so what are you doing about it? He said, uh, he said, well, we've had to arm our tax officials with Kalashnikov rifles. And, uh, and I sort of laughed and I, he said, Oh, yes, but it's only for self-defense. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Uh, so I, I came back and I said, I don't think we'll be <laughs> issuing Kalashnikov rifles to the ATO. I don't think we've, I don't think we've got that far yet. <laughs> That's next year's uh, program. <laughs> for you and such having such a wonderful life in politics, was it hard for you then moving out of politics and finding something that you wanted to do for the rest of your working life? I think so, because the thing about politics is it's, it's all encompassing, right? You would be amazed how many people are experts at politics. You walk down the street and everybody knows <laughs> what you should be doing. You walk down the street and somebody, why aren't you doing this? Why aren't you doing that? You know, why did you say this? Why did you say that? Every person, every shopkeeper, every taxi driver, <laughs> Every hairdresser knows how to run the country. <laughs> I, uh, you know, heard someone say once that the, the trouble with this country is the only people who really know how to run it became taxi drivers and hairdressers. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, yeah. and, and so they're all experts and uh, you're being stopped every day and told what you should do or what you should have done. There's no relief from it. I think by the time I finished, my they have a thing called a recognition rate. You know, um, how many people out of a hundred can recognise your name and your office? I had a recognition rate of ninety-five percent. So that meant wherever you were, people knew who who you were and what you did, and and they're all experts, right? So there's no escaping it. It's just consumes you. You know, whether you're down the shops, whether you're at the beach whether you're on a train, whatever you're doing. So, you know, it, it's nice to get out of that. But because you're used to working so hard, you have to find, I had to find something that, that was pretty energetic, you know, because you're used to working long days, seven days a week, 52 weeks of the year. So, you know, as it turned out, I got involved mostly in business and investment activities, which I like and uh, which, which gave me something something to occupy my time with. Did you have any thought to go, you know what, I'm going to, I'm going to cruise a little bit here, or is that just not in your makeup? I think in my mind I thought, oh, I'll go and live on a Greek island for a year. <laughs> but, you know, I realised after two days off I was a little bored, so I had to get on with work. <laughs> What about the family? They must have gone, Dad, can you can we have a holiday together? Or Dad, can we can we do something together because they'd missed you? Yeah, I think that's right. I was able to take the kids on a couple of holidays, which was nice, and spend some nights at home, which was good too. But I'm one of those people that n- needs to do stuff. I can't sit around on a beach all day. Yeah. You'll drive people mad. Yeah, especially my wife. <laughs> yeah. This is more about you looking at yourself now. Sort of what's that character trait of yours that you absolutely love that you go, you know what, more of this for more people. And then on the flip side, what's the thing you go, oh, I wouldn't mind a little less of that. Well, I used to sort of try and cheer them all up, uh, crack a few jokes here and there. You know, I always thought that the question time should be entertaining because I look at all these people that come from all over Australia to watch it. I hadn't come to watch a 
boring old sort of talk fest. They'd come to see a bit of might and theatre and action. So I used to run the jokes. Well, can't say they were always successful, but some of them are. There's quite a good uh, highlights reel out there. And I don't think they've had too many jokesters since. So, you know, I think, you know, when I was able to meet people and have a laugh and a bit of a joke, I think that was good. Uh, what uh, What's the char- character uh, I, I don't like? Well, you know, maybe I took it too seriously sometimes. I don't know. Yeah, a lot of things get sort of bandied around in politics don't really mean anything and, uh, and, and you're better to ignore a lot of it than to dwell on it. So I had to keep reminding myself, it doesn't mean anything. Think, you know, as, they, as they used to say, today's newspaper is tomorrow's fish and chip wrapper. Yeah, that's for sure. What are some of the achievements that you're most proud of outside of the GST? The fact that you're obviously in that treasury spot for the longest that anyone has been, but is, is there some other stuff that you just go, you know what, as a man, as Peter Costello right now, you know, I'm really proud of that. Yeah, the things that used to mean the most to me was when you could actually help people with their problems you know, if you're an MP, you've generally got a suburban or a regional office. People come in with problems. You know, it might be that they've been knocked back for a pension or it might be that they've got a veteran in the family who needs a partial pension or compensation. Or it might be that they can't get a particular medication. And if you're able to sort of help them get that part pension or help them navigate through a means test or, uh, you know, in my case, new pharmaceutical products that you could put on the pharmaceutical benefit scheme and they would get access. Uh, That's the thing that sort of meant the most to me because you, you are there as a member of parliament to represent your people. And if you could actually get them good outcomes, you could, you could change people's lives. And so that's, you know, I think a few of those, and I, you know, I've got a, a folder of letters from satisfied customers <laughs> saying thanks for this and thanks for that. That's the thing that really meant the most to me. I can totally imagine that. That would be a beautiful moment to be able to help people look them in the eye and know that mm. you've done something that's changed their life for, the, for a positive. Yeah, that's right. And help them for the better. Was there a moment, Peter, where you just went, Yes, I am successful. You know, I, I've got somewhere, you know. I've, I've <laughs> well, <laughs> I think, you know, look back on it. When I was just a new treasurer and I went off for talks in the US, I was talking to the New York Stock Exchange and they said, uh, we'd like you to come out and ring the bell and open the New York Stock Exchange. You know, you stand up on this podium and all the traders are down there. And uh, and some guy says, now the Australian treasurer will open trading on the New York Stock Exchange. And, of course, you ring this bell and clap and everyone looks at you and claps. And I thought, gee, this is nice. Yeah, I could open this. Uh. <laughs> yeah. and, 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 then, and then the Dow Jones fell 200 points. <laughs> and I thought, ooh, that wasn't very good. <laughs> for a moment, though, it was magic. Yeah, yeah, for 60 seconds. <laughs> I want to ask you one quick question before we do the Fast Five, which is how we end our podcast. Um, it hasn't been easy, obviously. The work mm. that I do 
in mental fitness and trying to get people through mentally through the last couple of years has, has been really challenging. But in terms of Josh Frydenberg's position, would you say from your experience that he's done a good job? What, what are your thoughts on Josh? Mm. Well, I know Josh pretty well and I see him quite regularly. So uh, I, I think he's done a, a really good job. Um, I think he's applied himself. One thing I'll tell you about Josh, he's a very hard worker. With the COVID thing, it was very difficult because we didn't really know how dangerous this virus was. And in a way, the shutdowns were beyond the control of the federal government. They were all done by state governments. Uh, So it was a a very difficult period for him and for Scott Morrison, for that matter. So, yeah, I, I reckon he's done really well. I actually wrote down Republic as well. Thoughts on the Republic, and do you think we will get there in the next little while, or do you think it's something that's on the back burner for the moment? Well, you know, I I think we'd be better if we were a Republic. Uh, That was my view when we added a referendum. It's still my view. And I I was just thinking that with this Glasgow thing, the, the Queen sort of gave a message to all of the delegates at Glasgow and obviously her comments had been approved by the British government and she was speaking on behalf of the British government because there it is, it's in Glasgow, it's in Britain. But she's also our Queen and we didn't get a look into what she was going to say. And as a consequence of that, I just thought there's always this confusion on the international stage as to who she speaks for and and who advises her. So, you know, I think it'd be better if we had someone from Australia who did that. Will it happen? I think it probably will. I think it probably will, after the Queen passes, uh, Australia will come back to it because she's held in great esteem and you do have to hand it to her. I mean, she's 93. She'd go pretty well. Sure is. So, you know, I think think we'll return to it. But it's funny that... That ballot was in 1999, so it's now more than 20 years old. And I remember people saying, oh, well, you can vote against this this model because if we vote against this model, we'll have another model in a few years' time. And I said, look, these votes only come around once in a generation and sometimes never come back again. And looking back, that was a once in a generation vote. I think we'd probably return to it, but, you know, it could be another 10 years. Is there anyone that sticks out that you go, you know what, because that, to me, I can't believe America hasn't got someone that just is a complete standout that you can go, right, I want to vote for him or her. Whereas do you think we need someone like that in Australia for us to go, that would be our president, that would be really cool? Do you, do you think we need that sort of person? I don't know that there are such people, really. You know, I've met the presidents and the prime ministers of all the leading countries and a royalty too. And at the end of the day, you know, they're all people. Mm. they've all got their strengths and they've all got their weaknesses and I think at the time of our referendum the the person who was the most popular person for president was Dick Smith why don't think Dick would be even on the radar today young people probably wouldn't even know who he was so I just don't think in this world that there's any such thing as the perfect human being no, you're up, absolutely right. Who's the most impressive person you've ever met out of all those kings and queens and prime ministers and presidents? Did you have one that you went, oh, it'd be great to have a beer with. I'd love to take him to Wessendon or I'd love to get him home for a roast on a Sunday. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
<laughs> well, yeah, I, I think the the bloke that you'd sort of want to go out to a pub with would be Bill Clinton. He'd, he'd go well in a pub <laughs> having a few beers. and He's always struck me as a sort of a good time fellow. Yep. You know, what they call in America, a good old boy. A good old boy, yeah. No, there's no doubt. Okay, the Fast Five. Your favourite holiday destination, and have you gone there? Because by the sounds of it, you're always working. <laughs> no, well, my favourite destination is somewhere with a beach and waves crashing on the beach. But it can be in Australia, it can be abroad. It doesn't have to be any particular place. It just has to be a beach. Yep. Beautiful. Your favourite quote, is there a quote that you've lived by or one that you heard and you went, you know what, I love it? I won't bore you with the poem it comes from, but um, there was a famous poem by Arthur Clough called Say Not the Struggle, Nought Availeth, and it finishes with the line, Westward look, the land is bright. And the idea is, you know, however down you might feel, if you take into account the full perspective the land is bright and that things will be okay. So that'll be my message of the day. I love that. I love being positive. Your favourite movie? The Blues Brothers. We're on a mission from God. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. Uh, your favourite book? Oh, the Costello memoirs. My own book, it must be. <laughs> Fantastic. Beautiful. Still, ava- st- still available in all good bookshops? No, sold out, I'm afraid. Needs a reprint. That's a good problem to have. Yeah. And the final question, which is a really important one, it had some support from Sean Partners, who have been wonderful supporters for this podcast and for my foundation, Gotcha for Life, and they would like to donate $10,000 to a charity of your choice. And if you could tell us who that is and what do you think they would do with the $10,000 as we wrap up the podcast with you, Peter? Well, I'd like to support a charity that I've been supporting for a long time called Very Special Kids, which is a hospice and respite services for kids who have terminal illnesses. And it's in my area, kids who are dying can be looked after there and are looked after there and their parents can have a week's holiday or or, or a couple of weeks holiday by putting the kids in for respite uh, care and uh, and I know the nun that founded it she's been doing a fantastic job over a long period of time so I'd like to nominate very special kids to get the ten thousand dollars or whatever is available um, to continue their work. Beautiful. No, definitely $10,000. And we'll put that in their account and we'll let them know that that's from your generosity, Peter. And thank you for your generosity of time today. I know there's lots going on in your world, but it's been lovely to chat to you on the Not An Overnight Success podcast. Terrific. Thanks. Great to be with you, Gus. And give my regards to your mum. She sounds like a great person. <laughs> I'll let her know that you're thinking of her. Thanks, mate. That was Peter Costello. What I really enjoyed about Peter was sitting down with someone that I remember growing up with had such an important position. The fact that he just spoke so openly about the situation with John Howard and I love the fact that he can look back on his career and say, I perhaps could have done things differently. Coming up in the next episode of Not An Overnight Success are two of the most humble and grounded athletes that I've ever come across, Tom and Jake Travojevic. I've known both of these gents since they were young boys playing in the northern beaches of Sydney. 
I've even done canteen duty with their mum. Both Tom and Jake are exceptions to the way we typically view footballers. In this chat, we speak about whether they will remain one club players, their intense family dynamic and managing life in the public eye. Yes, including that incident in the Corso. A big thank you to Shaw and Partners Financial Services who have generously supported this podcast and also donated $10,000 to the charity of choice of each of our guests to thank them for their time. Shaw and Partners are an Australian investment and wealth management firm who manage over $28 billion of assets under advice. With seven offices around Australia, Shaw and Partners act for and on behalf of individuals, institutions, corporates and charities. For more info, you can check out their website at shawandpartners.com.au. That's S-H-A-W for sure. Shaw and Partners Financial Services, your partners in building and preserving wealth.